Listener Production. Hello, my name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to this special series of The Weekend Briefing, where I talk to some of my favourite guests, old and new, about a single fascinating subject. Over two months, we'll be hearing from singers, writers, models, actors and changemakers on topics as diverse as the interview subject themselves. Today, you'll hear from Thomas Mayer, a Torres Strait Islander man who was born on Larrakia country in Darwin. Following the Uluru Convention, Thomas was entrusted to carry the sacred canvas of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. He has since embarked on a multi-year journey around the country to garner support for a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice. He joined me to talk about the upcoming referendum and why he is boldly making the case for yes. Hey, Thomas Mayer, welcome back to the Weekend Briefing. Thank you, Jamila. Good to be back. I think that's the first time I've ever said that. I think you're the first person to come back and you're also the first person on the show. So that makes you very special. Oh, it won't be the last time, I hope. (laughs) I hope so too. And look, I know our weekday um, briefing listeners will have heard your voice before because you have been spending most of this year moving around the country talking to people about the voice. And I I, want to get into that conversation in a moment, but I wanted to ask first, how are you? What does a week look like in your life at the moment? I am very busy, but I am as energized as ever. I've been working hard on this for uh, over six years now. Um, My average day is multiple events, uh, you know, and, and everything in between being part of the, you know, the, the leadership of the campaign, just trying to help Australians understand uh, what a you know unifying and, and wonderful moment this will be uh, to include Indigenous people in our constitution. It's that simple, something we should have done a long time ago. I was hoping you might take us back to begin with to when the Uluru Statement from the Heart was first written because you, you were involved in those conversations at the time. Can you tell me how that came about and what First Nations people were asking for at that point? Oh, well, it follows decades of struggle uh, to, uh, you know, many statements and petitions before the Uluru Statement, um, all of them calling for a voice, a great majority of them dismissed and ignored. Uh, and the Barunga Statement, 1988, was one that wasn't ignored. Mm. Uh, Bob Hawke was a Prime Minister. He established uh, a voice or the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission, which was a, a, a one of many voices throughout our history. And um, what we considered when we came together in the heart of the nation at Uluru, 270 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people from all parts of the country, was uh, the, the, those lessons, you know. Um, and, and one of the main lessons was that we had established many voices, uh, including ATSIC, and they all suffered the same fate. Uh, they were all dismissed. Uh, they were all basically silenced. Where one government had set up a form of voice, uh, such as the NAC or NACC, always another government came along. The next time uh, a new party was elected and just got rid of it. And so, uh, you know, this is why we're calling for it to be in the constitution, a voice as the form of recognition that Indigenous people are inviting Australians to accept. You said it's been a long time in the making. What we now know is the form that the voice would take in the constitution, but the form of words, I'm sorry, that the voice would take in the constitution, but the actual makeup of what that voice would look like, that's still a decision that would come down the track. Is that right? 
That's right. That's not what we're voting on. The Constitution is a very, uh, you know, uh, thin document compared to uh, legislation that contains how things are done. For example, the Constitution uh, gives the power to the Parliament to make laws for the collection of taxes or for the defence of the country. It doesn't say how much tax should be collected, uh, where the tax commissioner or how the tax commissioner is chosen, where the office should be. You know, it doesn't say where army bases should be and how many tanks we should have and those types of things. Uh, you know, we elect parliament to decide how they do what the constitution says they should do, uh, and we hold them to account every election. So much the same. Uh, what we are deciding here as Australians is if we should recognise Indigenous people in the way that they have proposed uh, back in 2017 through the Uluru Statement, which is through a voice, which is an advisory body to make representations on matters affecting Indigenous people. And how do you see that changing how decisions are made in Canberra? How does an advisory body, however it's constituted or whatever power it holds from being formed under the constitution, how does talking and advising actually start to shift government policy? Well, important, different to right now in the absence of such a body, we will be able to choose as Indigenous people in our communities uh, who speaks for us. At the moment, it could be, you know, a political party that chooses a, a senator, for example, who, you know, represents the party and an electorate, not Indigenous people. Uh, and that's problematic because, you know, uh, you know, it's not uh, accountable to Indigenous people in our communities. Uh, you know, it could be an individual that has uh, an interest in something that uh, takes a public profile, you know, or, or builds a public profile and purports to speak for all Indigenous people. So very differently, Indigenous people will have an opportunity to elect Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander representatives that will have set terms and we can hold them to account. And those representatives will be expected to take the solutions that have, are worked on on the ground to the parliament. And so it's going to be really effective because right now we have to wait for politicians to come to us mm. uh, in remote communities especially. This will be a proactive way for Indigenous people to work together, take the responsibility for what we think the solutions are, what policy should be, what the best programs are, and then take that to the politicians as as we wish. You know, like uh, we can consistently take these things to government uh, and the parliament and, and call for change in that. Sure, it's not a way uh, to force the government or parliament to do anything. And if we were to seek such a power, there's no way that it would ever pass a referendum. Uh, so it would be advisory to the government and the parliament. But, uh, you know, that advice, uh, the quality of the advice, who takes that advice to the parliament, that's going to really have great influence. And I think we'll see great strides in progress to closing the gap in life expectancy, to improving health and education and employment, all of those priorities back in our communities. In a, what feels like another lifetime, I used to work in, in Canberra for the Rudd and then the Gillard governments. And I remember at one on one occasion taking a trip with one of the ministers up to one of the communities only a few hundred kilometres outside of where Uluru is and talking to some incredible women in, in that community who spoke with such heartbreak, I suppose, but also a kind of a resignation 
to the idea that governments at different levels of different persuasions at different times would come into that community with all kinds of programs and that actually in in that community, the woman I spoke to, her view was that the problem wasn't actually a lack of funding, the problem was a lack of coordination, the problem was a lack of listening to the people in the community about what would work in that community, but instead the same kind of cookie-cutter approach being rolled out in 400 different communities and maybe it might work for 10 of them, but the rest of them, if they'd been able to design it themselves, they probably would have spent the money in a more sensible way. Is that the kind of thing that The Voice would advise on? Yeah, yeah, that's right, Jamila. I mean, back in my own community, uh, as well as having travelled to many communities over the last six years, you know, uh, the remotest of communities, but also urban uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, it's the same frustration. I'm glad you raised that um, frustration because it's one of the reasons why some Indigenous people don't support it. It's just that they're they're just the, the levels of trust or, or faith in anything changing has become so low and it's really sad. But at the same time, uh, we haven't given up. If you listen to any Indigenous person, we want to be heard. Uh, And we're not being heard and that's why, you know, these policies are failing. That should take us then to the evidence. There is plenty of evidence that when we are listened to, when we are shaping policies and programs, uh, such as the response to COVID uh, a couple of years ago, then we see great outcomes. Uh, you know, the COVID response in our most vulnerable communities, we had a rare opportunity to shape, you know, how we protected our communities and, and be, you know, leaders in, in that health response. Uh, and we saw six times less the infection rate as the non-Indigenous broader population. And it's something that's celebrated in the world. We see the Koori courts where, you know, Indigenous people are involved in justice for youth and um, and we see uh, lower rates of uh, reoffending, uh, birthing on country programs where Indigenous people are designing uh, how, you know, uh, all of those things about maternity. And we're seeing, you know, lower uh, mortality rates for it, you know. But you see, this is important to think about then. When you have good programs, often they're just cut when there is a change of government. For example, uh, back in, I think, 2014-15, there were over 70 early childhood, you know, Aboriginal controlled centres in communities and they were just cut uh, and they were doing wonderful work. They were they were making such a great impact. But for a political whim, those programs were ended. So, you know, this consistency of a voice by the Australian people enshrining it in the constitution by saying yes in this referendum, it's going to have a great impact on closing the gap. you've made the case for The Voice really elegantly and the impact that it will make. Can we talk about the campaign? (laughs) There's been a lot of criticism in the news and there's been a whole lot of polling that suggests that the Yes campaign probably isn't sitting where it needs to be at this point. How are you feeling? Uh, I'm feeling really good. The campaign's going great. It's ramping right up. We're uh, probably a bit more than 60 days away from when the referendum might be. And we're up to, I think, almost 25,000 volunteers, you know. Um, wow. And, and that's up, uh, you know, uh, and thousands uh, since, you know, over the last couple of weeks. Thousands of doors knocked. And on the doors and, you know, I've done plenty of train stations and, and door knocking myself in the last couple of weeks. I've got to tell you, it's a very different feeling out in public to what we're seeing 
uh, in the media yeah. and, and in the polls. Like um, there's a lot of curiosity to learn about this. There's a lot of open minds. There's few that are uh, closed minds that we're coming across compared to, you know, even the, there's greater numbers saying, yeah, we're already voting yes. Uh, and that's been – I've been to out of Sydney so far. Um, there's been loads of door knocking. Like I think the most door knocking we've had is in Western Australia. It's just such a really positive feeling. So I'm excited. I'm excited for what we're going to do as Australians in just a couple of months. And I, I really believe we can win. we just got to do the work. When you and I are recording this chat, we're not long past the Gama Festival that's held in, in northeast Arnhem Land. Can you tell us what it was like being – up there and and the kind of community discussions that were happening this year. Yeah, so it was. Uh, I, I didn't go to Gama. Uh, I sort of thought I'd just stay on the road and keep, uh, you know, visiting people and talking to people that were undecided. But at Gama, I, I've heard such a great. Uh, you know, people came away from there really energised. Indigenous people from all around the country. You know, they're on country with the Yolnu mob, the Gumach clan. Uh, you know, on their country. They reckon that in the in the dust in the you know in the in the cars and all over the place yes was written everywhere, <laughs> you know they were celebrating the late Unipingu's life, uh, you know one of the one of the great leaders of our people and, and a strong advocate for this. It came at an important time and I think everyone left uh, reinvigorated. So what happens now? What happens as you say? We don't have an exact date yet, but we know can't be all that far away, a couple of months maybe, that we're going to be going to the polls. What happens for the Yes campaign over the next period? Do you keep campaigning the way you have, as you say, knocking on doors, standing at train stations, or does it start to look a little different? Yeah, that's right. We keep doing that. Uh, we want to knock on many more thousands of doors and uh, we want uh, you know tens of thousands more volunteers. So I say to the listeners, uh, you know, if you're supportive, if the reasons that I gave that we need to achieve this uh, have motivated you, uh, then get onto the yes23.com.au website and volunteer. There's also going to be an air game, you know, and uh, there'll be, uh, you know, there's a, a series of, of ads that are going to come out. Uh, and so, you know, we need more funding to be able to do that. So I encourage people to, to dig deep in this once in many lifetimes opportunity you know, we're not going to get another shot at this. So um, help us out, volunteer, donate, and we'll do the work and we'll, we can succeed. I feel bad asking this question, but I feel like I have to. There's obviously a possibility that we don't get a yes vote in a couple of months, a few weeks, whatever it ends up being. What does that say about where the Australian population is is at on questions of supporting the equality of First Nations people in this country on so many indicators where we continue to see a gap that's not being closed? And what happens next? I really believe that the Australian people, the sentiment is with us. They understand that uh, it's about time that we recognised our Indigenous heritage and culture over 60,000 years that, you know, is a, is a great gift for us all to share and to be unique in the world, the, the longest continuous civilization on the planet. I think most Australians want to embrace that. They also understand that there is a real problem here, uh, that nothing else has worked to repair, you know, this uh, this gap in, in all of those measures. Nothing has worked. Uh, and for the money spent, it's, uh, you know, we could do better. Uh, we could save money by getting better outcomes and we can save lives at the same time. So I think the Australian people are ready. The only problem is that they're uh, you know, they've been confused by a dishonest no campaign. 
mm. uh, that has been, uh, you know, shamefully, uh, you know, duplicitous. It has, con- there's many contradictions. And as I mentioned, um, it's disinformation and, and fear mongering. For an advisory body, you know, to, to tell people that it's going to steal their backyards or, you know, do all these sorts of things, it's, it's utterly ridiculous. So I believe that the Australian people are ready for this, but it goes back to doing the work and to people having open minds, and I believe they do, but they need fellow Australians that they trust and that they love or that they can see face-to-face, not just on Facebook where all the keyboard warriors are being amplified, uh, you know, and the trolls. We've got to get out there, have conversations with our loved ones, get on the streets, and um, that is the only way we're going to win this. And to contemplate losing this, it's, it's incredibly sad to consider that we could fail at this, such a modest proposal. And it, it won't be the status quo, I say to the listeners. If this goes down, things are going to be worse for Indigenous people. You know, the self-esteem that we would lose by, you know, this invitation being rejected is going to have real impacts on mental health, but also impacts where a government that wants to play political games with our lives, as they always have, that they will have a mandate to continue to treat us as a political football. Um, so get out there and do the work. Join yes23.com.au. Uh, don't wake up the next morning feeling like you could have done more and regretting it. Let's get out there and win it. Well, Thomas, I know one person who will not, regardless of the outcome, be waking up and wondering if they could have done more. That is you because I have seen you moving around the country via social media uh, nonstop talking to everyone you can. I really appreciate you giving me some of your time. I'm going to work every day until this is done, um, as I sort of pretty much have done for the last six years. So I'm not going to wake up the next morning feeling like I could have done more. You're right, Jamila, and I hope you all will walk with me. Thanks for being with us, Thomas. Thank you. That's it for my conversation with Thomas Mayer. If you want to understand more about what the two of us were speaking about, I really want to encourage you to go and read the Uluru Statement from the Heart. It's not very long, and most Australians say that they haven't actually read it yet. You simply Google, or any search engine of choice, folks, uh, Uluru's Statement from the Heart, and it will come up. It'll take you a few minutes to read it. And I think the, the weight and the significance of that document will really stay with you and I hope guide you when you're making up your mind about how to vote in the upcoming referendum. Make sure that regardless of how you're voting, you're doing so in a way that comes from information, not disinformation. Thank you so much for being with me today on the Weekend Briefing. It's been wonderful to have your company. If you want to make sure that you never miss an episode of the Weekend Briefing or indeed the Weekday Briefing, the best thing to do is to download the Listener app and follow us there or you can subscribe or follow us wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.